Today's scripture reading is found in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, if you want to follow along. While Peter and John were addressing the people, the priest, the chief of the temple police, and some Sadducees came up. Indignant that these upstart apostles were instructing the people and proclaiming that the resurrection from the dead had taken place in Jesus. They arrested them and threw them in jail until morning, for by now it was late in the evening. But many of those who listened had already believed the message, in round numbers about 5,000. The next day, a meeting was called in Jerusalem. The rulers, religious leaders, religion scholars, Annas the chief priest, Caiaphas, John Alexander, everybody who was anybody was there. They stood... Peter and John in the middle of the room and grilled them. Who put you in charge here? What business do you have doing this? With that, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, let loose. Rulers and leaders of the people, if we have been brought to trial today for helping a sick man put under investigation regarding this healing, I'll be completely frank with you. We have nothing to hide But the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one you killed on the cross, the one God raised from the dead, by means of his name, this man stands before you healthy and whole. Jesus is the stone you masons threw out, which is now the cornerstone. Salvation comes no other way. No other name has been or will be given to us by which we can be saved. Only this one. They couldn't take their eyes off them. Peter and John standing there so confident, so sure of themselves. Their fascination deepened when they realized that these two were laymen with no training in scripture or formal education. They recognized them as companions of Jesus, but with the man right before them, seeing him standing there so upright, so healed, What could they say against that? They sent them out of the room so they could work out a plan. They talked it over. What can we do with these men? By now, it is known all over town that a miracle has occurred and that they are behind it. There is no way we can refute that. But so that it doesn't go any further, let's silence them with threats so they don't dare to use Jesus' name ever again with anyone. They called them back and warned them that they were on no account ever again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John spoke right back. Whether it's right in God's eyes to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. As for us, there's no question we can't keep quiet about what we've seen and heard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Dan. Jesus has been crucified, and rumors of his resurrection are being squelched left and right. And the religious elite are hoping that his followers would just go away. But they didn't. 
Our current sermon series is taking a look at the book of Acts and the church on mission. Last week, Nijay Gupta looked with us at Acts 3, where these two disciples that we're going to continue looking at today, Peter and John, are on their way to worship at the temple, something they've done their whole life at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when they encounter a crippled man begging at the door. Not an unusual occurrence. Nietzsche pointed out that Peter and John, though, this time, they've probably walked by this man a number of times, but this time they stared intently at him. In other words, they saw him maybe for the first time. They really looked at him. And he's begging. He's asking them for alms, for coins, for money. And Peter says, we have no silver or gold with us, but what we do have, we give to you. And they grabbed the man by the arms and they lifted him up and said, in the name of Jesus, we call for your healing. And the man in that moment is healed. In this ordinary daily moment of people going and coming from the temple, a miracle occurred. The divine broke into the ordinary. And as miracles do, I don't know, I haven't seen a ton of them. Yes, daily miracles every day. The fact that I breathe air into my lungs, right? That's a miracle in itself. But this type of miracle stopped everybody in their tracks. Took the ordinary right out of that ordinary day. And Peter, seeing the opportunity, a crowd stopped and they gathered. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. And he begins to preach what Nije last week called a grace sandwich. I love that image with a, you know, the top sandwich layer of compassion and care and grace. And then this kind of a hefty middle layer of accountability because a lot of the people in the crowd that day were, were partly responsible for yelling out for the crucifixion of Jesus. So if people of faith rejecting the Messiah, and then this bottom layer, again, of an offering of grace and forgiveness. And we see what happened. More than 5,000 people were convicted by the Spirit that day and began to follow Jesus. Well, chapter 4, which is our focus today, is the continuation. After chapter 3 was over last week, we all went home, right? But the story is still live. It's still right in the middle of things. It opens with while Peter and John were still speaking to the people. So imagine the scene with me for a moment. The ordinary hubbub of temple life had come to a standstill. One voice, all of a sudden, was heard rather than the hundreds of murmurs that you could normally hear of people going and coming. And those two things immediately captured the attention of the priests and the temple guard who were always on hand in a time of unrest to make sure that things didn't get out of hand, and then the Sadducees. So those three groups began to pay attention to what's going on. The Sadducees are uh, a ruling party in the temple uh, made up of high priests and aristocratic families, and not a one of these three groups of people are happy with this miracle. The message says they are indignant. The New Revised says annoyed. The New Living says they were very disturbed. 
Now, why on earth would people be indignant, annoyed, and disturbed? A crippled man has all of a sudden risen to his feet, is leaping around, praising God, and giving uh, just such praise to the Lord. And usually you would think that's a good thing, right? That's what we want to see happen. Not in this case. The, the common people are all rejoicing, but the leaders are pretty grumpy about what has just happened. They barely even took notice that a man in their midst had been healed. Kind of feels like the gospel on repeat, doesn't it? Every time we see Jesus and a, a miracle occurs and, and someone is healed and life is restored, the leaders of the temple are disgruntled and sometimes even furious about what has occurred. A life made whole. Hope poured into a hopeless situation. Yet no rejoicing, no celebrating, no recognition that God was present in their midst. When I read this, it just seemed so oddly oblivious. They just seemed oddly oblivious to the good that occurred. And it kind of made me think of our climate today in a couple of ways. I thought about, you know, how the political parties in our, in our country, when uh, the opposing party, whoever that is, does something that results in great good for the country and people's lives, the other party is just disgruntled about it. They're going to poke every hole in it they can possibly poke, rather than rejoicing that there is common good occurring in our country Although, can I just say a little side note, it was rather refreshing to see DeSantis, DeSantis and Biden work well together in Florida. So I want to say that sometimes, wow, we actually get to see that. So don't want to dismiss that. Yay, that's right. Woo and if we want to bring kind of this uh, posture a little closer to home, sometimes even churches, particularly church leaders of which I stand as one, Sometimes when there's another church in the city and good things are happening, like kind of big stuff, not, not the showy stuff, we hope nobody's doing that, but when people's lives are being changed, every once in a while the churches in the city can be a little grumpy about it. Well, I wouldn't have done it that way. Or, well, their theology doesn't line up quite the way it should. Politics and theology are both part of why this group of people in this chapter 4 are disgruntled. Politically, they want very much to stay on the good side of Rome. And this man, Jesus, that had just been put to death on a Roman cross, has already created enough tension in the community between the Jewish rulers and the Roman government. They just want it squelched. For the Sadducees, it is not only political, it is also theological. They do not believe in life after death. They do not believe in a resurrection. And here these guys are again giving hope to the people that there is a resurrection through Jesus Christ after earthly death. So all of that occurred kind of late in the day, and so the Pharisee or the, the temple leaders all needed to get home or they needed to get on to other responsibilities. So they just threw Peter and John into jail and decided to deal with them the next day. By the next morning, 
all the big guns have gathered. Everybody who's anybody in temple life has gathered that day to meet with Peter and John. And as Dan so energetically read, I love the way he read the scripture this morning, they grilled him. They said, we want to know by whose authority and by what name gives you any right to do what you have done, what you are doing. In other words, you common, ordinary people, who gave you any right to stand up here and teach in the temple? And notice the first phrase in verse 8. We're going to spend some time there. It says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. We're going to get to what it was that he said to them, but let's not miss the line that says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, you guys, we know Peter and John, don't we? <laughs> we have kind of seen them through the eyes of Jesus all through the Gospels. And to be honest, we've watched Jesus essentially roll his eyes slap his forehead at some of the things that these guys said and did time and time again. I think that's because they're a little bit like you and me, or at least me, they don't quite always get what Jesus is doing. John, if you remember, wanted to call down fire on people who didn't think like he did. Hmm. <laughs> Sounds familiar. John and his brother and their mother got together and asked Jesus if they could have the highest, most important positions in the kingdom. Sure, Jesus, that they were ready for it. Peter often opened his mouth when he shouldn't have. Oh, and in the end, he, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in this holy, holy moment, he pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of Jesus. Did he ever see Jesus use violence in the kingdom? Oy! <laughs> These are ordinary men. But all of a sudden, something has changed. The extraordinary that we see in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. The ordinary are the people, and the extraordinary is God coming to act in their time. It is divine action that always empowers and safeguards the mission of the church. Was then, is now. People have always, it seems, had a propensity toward extraordinary human beings. From athletes to movie stars, from celebrity pastors, to extraordinary writers, we look for those who are a notch above the ordinary human being. At best, I suppose this may at times inspire us and give us something, an ideal to strive for, which isn't all bad. But at its worst, it puts someone in place of God. To where we are so impressed with the extraordinary human, we forget that it is divine intervention that does everything that we see in this book, we began to worship almost the created rather than the creator. And so Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, begins to speak truth. 
to those in power. And those in power did not want Jesus preached to the crowds. They really wanted things to just go back to the way they were before Jesus showed up on the scene. And can we just say that things never go back to the way they were when Jesus shows up on the scene? Amen. Amen. But that's what they're longing for, and they still think they can control it. They want people to forget he existed. They don't want him thinking about his miracles, his teachings, or that they were responsible for the crucifixion. And given the right circumstances, we got to always remember that we could have been them making that decision in that moment. Nijay did a good job taking out any notion of anti-Semitism in this passage. This is a human problem. This is not a race problem. In this private audience that day of disciples and temple leaders, Peter gives a pretty short, direct message, a pretty short, direct answer to the question, by whose authority are you doing this? He says, I'm going to be completely frank with you. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one you killed on the cross, the one that God raised from the dead by means of his name, this man stands before you healthy and whole. Jesus, he goes on to say, the stone that you threw out, you cast outside of the gates of Jerusalem, Uh uh-oh, that was the cornerstone of our faith. Since ancient times, builders have used cornerstones when building in construction projects. I don't know a lot about construction, but what I do understand is that the cornerstone is usually the largest, most solid stone, and the most carefully constructed of any in the building project. And when it is set in place, everything else is aligned to that stone. And Peter says, Jesus is that stone. He's foundational. Everything we do depends on him. Everything is measured and aligned with Jesus. And Peter, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, points this private audience to a scripture they know. This is, after all, their faith heritage and the message that they were to take to the world. So he talks about uh, Psalm 118.22, this verse they know that talks about a cornerstone that saves. Peter says, Jesus is the stone. Don't reject him. No one else is coming. You've waited hundreds of years for the Messiah. This is him. Don't miss him. This is your saving Messiah. What did Jesus say the Holy Spirit would do when the Holy Spirit came? He said that the Spirit would remind his people of everything Jesus. The Holy Spirit would remind us of what he taught. He would remind us of what he did. And he would guide us into all the truth. The Holy Spirit always makes everything about Jesus. 
I thought as I studied that this week, I thought that is a great filter for us today. Is it all about Jesus? When we get impressed with some ministry or we're following some Christian leader, this is such an important filter. Is this Christian leader or, or this upcoming author or musician making it all about Jesus or about human influence and reputation? We often make faith about everything else but Jesus. We make it about our tribe, about our party, about our generation. And it's a temptation for all of us. We have to push above that. You know, sometimes it's just easier to make faith about those small things that are close and tangible and, I'm going to just say, controllable. And you guys, Jesus is never controllable. And so we've got to let those other things go and and question ourselves, step back and say, am I, is my faith all about Jesus? Nijay pointed out the same thing last week. He talked about our fascination with Christian celebrities. And they topple, and they topple, and we look for the next one. Jesus, in the beginning, was with God. Before time, he, the, he was, he, I'm sorry, let me start that over. Jesus, as we know from John 1, it says Jesus is the begin is is God was with God and was God and God then pulled on skin as the message says and moved into the neighborhood in the form of Jesus Christ and God in the form of Jesus walked with humanity he talked with us he cried with us he laughed with us he laid down his life for us he rose again and ascended into heaven. And we get fascinated with a human. Let's refocus. Jesus came to save a flailing humanity, came to realign everything according to him, came to realign all nations, not just ours, but all nations under the authority, grace, and mercy of God Almighty. And this incredible, incredible truth This incredible truth, rather than staying focused on that truth, we often cling to our fascinations. Look at verse 13. They couldn't take their eyes off of them. Peter and John, standing there so confident, so sure of themselves, so their fascination deepened when they realized that these two were laymen, ordinary people, with no training in Scripture, and no formal education. Wow. They were fascinated with these guys. They were ordinary and uneducated, yet they were so powerful in speech. I could tell you stories of pastors that I have heard so powerful in speech that every time I listened, college students, so powerful, this pastor that came, and every time we knew he was coming to our campus, we'd all just be so excited and so pumped because, man, the, the, the spirit moved when he spoke. And within that same year that I was still at college, we found out that whole stinking time, sorry if that's appropriate from the pulpit, but 
the whole time he had a mistress back at a hotel room. Do not, boy, did I learn as a college student, do not get fascinated with speech and with skill and with ability. Keep your eyes on Jesus. God often works through the ordinary, through the ordinary, to bring about the extraordinary. It's what God does again and again all through Scripture. Chooses an ordinary teenage girl to birth God and then be his mom. He chooses a ragtag bunch of fishermen and tax collectors, thieves and zealots to be his closest companions. And to keep pastors humble everywhere in the Old Testament, God chooses and uses an ordinary donkey to speak truth to a stubborn heart. God uses the ordinary to be a vessel for the extraordinary. That means God can use every single one of us in this room. It's not about the person, it's about the God. Acts 4 says the religious leaders recognized Peter and John as having been with Jesus. Did they recognize them uh, physically? I think it could be because they traveled with Jesus those three years and they had all these encounters. They probably recognized them physically. But they may have also recognized them because they spoke with the same type of authority that they saw in Jesus. Or maybe it was the miracle. Those were not common. We, tend, we think that those might have been common. They weren't at all. And so here it is. Here's this, uh, this, these two men who had been with Jesus also performing or being vessels for a miracle. Whatever it was, they smelled like Jesus in that room that day. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? they got to squelch this. And yet here's this healed man standing among them. And rather than repenting and rejoicing, rather than acknowledging that God is in the moment, they move to executive session. <laughs> they go behind closed doors. They say, what on earth are we going to do? We can't, this guy's out there, everybody, too many people saw him, so they decide they're just going to go back out there, and they reprimand Peter and John as strongly as they can to not ever again speak in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John, still filled with the Holy Spirit, did not even hesitate a second. They said, well, whether it is right in God's eyes for us to listen to you Rather than to God, you're going to have to decide that. But for us, there's no question. We cannot keep quiet about what we have seen and what we have heard. Mic drop. <laughs> there's nothing more to be said, and so they release them. I'm excited that next Sunday, we're going to take a look at what Peter and John and the church do next. Uh, Seth this morning talked about the power of prayer and the God is moving. We're going we're gonna to participate in that next week. We will look at the rest of this chapter and we'll, we'll put some time in prayer and see 
what the, what the early church did on mission and what we still are called to do on mission. But that's next Sunday, so come back for that. I want to explore a little bit more this morning something else. I always feel a little bit uneasy every time somebody says, hey, let's do a series in the book of Acts. And part of, there's really two reasons that I feel a little uneasy. Part of it's my own kind of skewed, dysfunctional uh, view of, of Scripture. Because I always think of Acts as something I have to live up to and lead the church to live up to. As if Peter and John and Paul and Silas, who are going to show up on the scene pretty soon, as if they were all extraordinary human beings who did extraordinary feats that we all should be able and capable of today. So I feel a little uneasy because I don't feel like we're doing that. But Acts isn't, as I've said, about extraordinary people. It's about an extraordinary God. So then I calm down because I realize, okay, well, God is still the same extraordinary God. The other reason um, I feel uneasy about Acts occasionally is that I've seen it. I don't know, some of you guys may have too. I've seen people approach the book of Acts almost looking for ways to control the spirit, almost to manipulate. Well, if we is there, you know, an ancient password or a sacred way of prayer? So many hours, if we just put so many hours in, then we can uh, control what the Spirit will do in our time. And while we're going to talk about the importance of prayer, we have to approach it in a way that it is God's choice what to do, okay? We don't manipulate or control what God is going to do in His Spirit, Jesus promised that all who put their faith, that means you and me, if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. I liked Nijay's definition of being of the Holy Spirit. It is the powerful presence of God with us. So every single one of us has the powerful presence of God with us. So I said to John one day, I said, well, then why is it that I always feel like we're more like the disciples before the Holy Spirit came? Just speaking to myself, none of you, right? I just, I relate more to Peter and John before the Spirit than after. And John didn't miss a beat either. And he just reminded me, he said, Denise, just remember in just a, a few weeks, months, and years following Acts 2, we're going to see these guys squabbling again, disagreeing vehemently, and not always choosing the right thing. You see, they too had to work out their faith in ordinary life most of the time. They had different personalities that clashed at times. Their, their, the church began to be persecuted and scattered. That was a difficult, difficult time. There was the awkwardness of now trying it's like, oh my word, God really threw this at them. All of a sudden, Gentiles and Jews coming together to worship? What? Those were tough times, and they didn't always know what to do. What do you make of all this? What do we make of all this? Well, I, I'm a big proponent of looking at the whole counsel of Scripture, 
I think oftentimes we get in trouble or we even cults develop out of uh, groups that decide they're just going to pull one passage of scripture and everything has to fit within that framework. Now you got, if we look at the way God works from Genesis through Revelation, we're going to note that God shows up when God chooses to show up and how God shows up is God's choosing. Sometimes it's an immediate response to prayer. I mean, it is like that. We see that in so many places. I think of the time that the prophet Elisha said, God, would you just open the, the eyes of my servant who was shaking in his boots because there were huge warriors, enemy warriors surrounding them. And God answered in a moment and opened up the eyes of that servant. And all of a sudden he saw the heavenly warriors surrounding them. And he had peace and calm in that moment. So that was one time that God answered immediately. Other times, it takes, God takes 400 years to show up in power and release his people from slavery. He takes 400 years before he speaks between the old covenant and the new. When an angel appears to Mary, it had been a very long time since they had had a word from the Lord. Galatians 4.4 says that at just the right time, God sent his, his son to be born of a woman. The word used there for time in this verse, at just the right time, is the word keros. And it means at just the right moment. It's not, it's not chronos that, that just talks about time. Keros is when it's the moment that something should happen and it happens. So Jesus, God acts at just the moment. It's actually uh, an archery term, keros is. But since we're probably, probably more of us in the room are more familiar with football than archery, I'm going to kind of go there with this, okay? So think of it like this. It's like watching a really gifted quarterback, an Aaron Rodgers or a Patrick Mahomes. They're on the field, and they've got the bullet. They've got the ball, and they are scanning the field, scanning. They're waiting for it, waiting for it. And at just the right moment, they pull back the arm, and they throw a bullet pass that nearly misses all those defenders, and it hits the target, the receiver, exactly where it should. What's that receiver's job? That receiver's job is to know the playbook, to follow the play, and to be where he is supposed to be and get open to receive. Our eldest son, uh, Eric, played receiver for 12 years. And I loved to watch him play. And there were so many times, believe me, his mama knew because she was always watching for her son to get that ball. But there were so many times that he got open and the quarterback threw it somewhere else, right? Eric didn't have to worry about that. He just had to worry about, am I where I need to be? Have I gotten open? Have I done my job? Devontae Adams Top NFL receiver in 2021 made 11 touchdowns that season. 
Now here's the part I want you to hear. In the top 25 receivers in the whole league, the average number of touchdowns in a season, these are the top performers, is only about six. They are top performers not just because of the glory moment of the touchdown, but because of what they do on the field that nobody notices, right? They are, they are uh, creating play. They're, well, they're not creating plays. I, well, maybe they're. I don't know. My husband says I better sound like I know what I'm talking about this way. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Fred. Sometimes I, I do. I love to watch football. But part of what the, the, the job of the receiver is is to help make first downs just to move the team down the field, right? And they're also opening up um, their blocking so that somebody else can sometimes get through and receive that ball. That's why they're top performers. They get the team down the field again and again. But they run thousands, thousands of yards. They make hundreds, maybe thousands of plays in the season, and the top receivers only average six touchdowns in a season. Peter and John were simply fishing. They were simply doing their job the day that Jesus stopped and asked to borrow their boat. I don't know what their prayers had been prior to that, probably something like, Lord, Help us get a good catch today so we can provide for our families. And probably daily, like every other good Jewish person, they had prayed for the Messiah to come. They had done so for hundreds of years. They were simply where they were supposed to be that day, doing their job. And now three years later, again, we see Peter and John simply doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're going to worship. They're going to the temple for prayer and for worship when the Holy Spirit shows up, fills them with power. I guess part of what I really want us to grasp, there's not a secret password. We don't have to try harder. We don't have to manipulate. God will act. The Holy Spirit will move in your life, in our church, in our world, our job, when, when at just the right moment. God knows what God is doing, and our job is to stay open to receive. To be faithful in the ordinary, to the study of God's word, to worship, to gathering together with other believers, and to serve. And good, good things happen in the ordinary. The mission gets moved down the field, so to speak. We don't often experience what one would call the big moment, the big moments, the big miracles in faith. They happen. Oh boy, do they happen. But they only happen when God knows it's just the right moment to move. And we can trust God with those kind of movements. And do we all hope it will be in our time, in our city? Absolutely. And it very well could be. Think of the great awakenings that have happened uh, 
Think of the way the Spirit is moving even now in places like Africa and South America. Things God is on the move. And we want to stay open. We need to stay open for God, what God wants to do. But it's just our job to show up faithful in the ordinary and move the mission down the field. I want to talk a little bit this morning in closing about one of the ways that New Hope moves the mission down the field. This just came to my attention yesterday. I was uh, working with neighbor to neighbor, and that's what I want to talk about. One of the ways that New Hope moves the mission down the field is through one of our ministries called Neighbor to Neighbor. We get outside of these walls together the second Saturday of every month. Three to five people go to the same home. They build relationships with that person, and they meet ordinary needs in our neighborhood. One of our teams serves a local woman in her mid-80s, not very far from this church. She's had to adjust this past couple of years, maybe this last year, uh, of living alone after placing her husband of 60 years in assisted living. And after 60 years of marriage, as some of you in this room know, that's a difficult and a lonely transition. She's capable of caring for kind of her basic needs and personal uh, household needs, but she really needs help with, with larger projects, mostly like yard work and a few home maintenance things, and she had no one. And so somebody told her about neighbor to neighbor, and she contacted our lead, or somebody contacted us for her, and pretty soon we had a team of three to five people that go every single month to help her out. They've done things like repaired a fence, trim back shrubs that were out of control, laid brick pavers and spread bark dust. But probably, probably one of the most important things that her team provides, one of the most important things all of our teams provide to their care receivers is emotional support. A sense of security knowing that there is someone that she can reach out to. She woke up one morning this summer, I know because I was here at the church early that morning, and it, that was a God thing because one of her team members popped by here to use the phone because this woman had had, uh, she woke up to water going everywhere in her house and just panicked, mid-80s, no husband there, what's she going to do? And so she, uh, two team members show up quickly, get it taken care of at no cost to her. And she tells them repeatedly how much it means to, them, to her that she just knows she just has somebody that she can call if she just needs to talk through something or if she has a, a pipe break early in the morning. Miracle? No. But our teams are moving the ball down the field. They're staying open. They're being the hands and feet of Jesus. They're on mission in our city. They get themselves in position, they get open, and they let God do what God wants to do. And I hear great stories all the time out of neighbor to neighbor. Miracle? Maybe it just depends on who you ask. Let's pray. Our loving God, we, we're so thankful that you choose 
to stay so committed and so interwoven into the world that you created. Thank you that we can just relax in our ordinariness, knowing that that's almost always who you use. And so we want to recommit ourselves to just being open and doing the things we need to be open to your spirit. And the way you want to move, whether it's getting the ball down the field or making a touchdown, maybe it will be in our time and in our space and in our city that you move in such a big way. God, we want to be ready. We want to be open. We want to be your vessels. And so we commit ourselves anew to being that. In Jesus' loving name, amen.